Welcome to the most accurate podcast brought to you by 444.com. My name is Greg Smith and I'm your host. The music on today's show is a song called Fire Escapes off the 2005 album Above the City by a band called Smoke or Fire. To hear the full song, check out the TMAP B-Sides playlist on Spotify, which is linked in the show notes. We've got a lot to get to in reaction to the 2020 NFL Draft on this episode, and I've enlisted John Daigle from Roto World to help me cover as much as possible within you know the scope of a typical podcast episode. Of course, we won't be able to get to absolutely everything, so be sure to head over to 444.com and check out all the draft-related content we've been cranking out there to fill in the gaps uh, that we might be missing here. Anyway, like I said, we're on a tight schedule, so let's bring John Daigle right in and get into it. Follow him on Twitter at NotJDaigle and check out all of his work over at Roto World. Welcome to TMAP, John. How are you holding up after our you know, collective overdose on new information from the NFL Draft? Still piecing a few things together, but I think we're ready to roll. And by the way, you can tell the people how it is. We were introduced at F- FSWA in Vegas this past year, and I'm the one who my jaw dropped when we introduced each other because I'm a big fan of this podcast. I truly think it's one of the most actionable podcasts all every single off season. And uh, I was very excited when you asked to have me on. So I do truly appreciate it, Greg. Well, thank you for coming on, man. That's really nice of you to say, and hopefully we can uh, steer the listeners in the right direction. And let's just get right into draft talk here. I want to start with some more general reactions to what we saw take place during the draft. What was your most important big picture takeaway? I think it was actually quite shocking how many teams went with needs as opposed to best player on the board. Now, the one that stands out best player on the board wise is, of course, the Cowboys adding C.D. Lamb to a wide receivers room who was getting ready to roll out Ventel Bryan or Sed Wilson in the slot as an every down receiver. But everyone else, you look at it and they were just thinking two years in advance, right? Uh, Marlon Mack contract coming up. We'll talk about that in depth in a second. So the Colts add Jonathan Taylor. Even a, a team like the Bills who needed goal line broods are following Frank Gore's absence in free agency. They grab Zach Moss. T.Y. Hilton's contract negotiations coming up. So the Colts add Michael Pittman. So there's so many fantasy-specific items. And even if you want to take a step back and say, oh, the Niners needed a defensive tackle after trading DeForest Buckner, here's Javon Kinlaw. I, I It probably was because of the situation we're going through right now. But for whatever the case, the lack of uh, typical scouting that everyone did this past offseason led everyone just taking the nearest apple, the closest one hanging from the tree. And I think it actually worked out long term. I was going to ask you if you think that was in part due to the fact that we're dealing with this pandemic and there is a question about whether or not we're going to have an NFL season in 2020. I just have a hard time believing that, but I guess that is something that we have to grapple with, right? Yeah, I like to try to stay positive. I know we likely won't be getting OTAs. I say I know. I don't know anything like like everyone else. I sure, have no yeah. idea. I would imagine we don't have OTAs. Preseason's probably highly up in the air, but the way things are going, it does seem like we can at least squeeze in games without crowds. It's going to be interesting to see what happens, but for the time being, I think we should just uh, move full steam ahead, worry about the preseason, and let's see what happens then. So did any team stand out to you as not adhering to that trend? You know, teams that did draft for need, did draft for the right now? <sighs> I hate pouring dirt on the Packers, but it's just so easily, right? Like, so on one hand, you can say they did exactly what they wanted to do. They got beaten to a pulp so bad by the Niners that they tried to become the Niners. Of course, they don't have a quarterback's arm who they're trying to hide 
like the Niners are with Garoppolo. They don't have the most brilliant offensive mind in the entire NFL and Kyle Shanahan calling plays. And of course, they don't have the strong offensive line like the Niners do. So it's just it's just very strange. But then again, like it's what the Packers sought out to do. They did that, except in just trading ahead for Jordan Love, jumping three teams who weren't interested who had like a, I say not interested, I don't know for sure, but they had easily like a Ravens and Titans, a 99% chance of foregoing backup quarterback, 100%, right? Sure. And so to jump those teams for a backup quarterback, right? Because now we can say Aaron Rodgers has one, two good years left probably. So if you're trying to build for rookie windows in a quarterback, that's how you manufactured your cap space. Already, literally 50% of Jordan Love's rookie deal window is going to be gone by the time he takes over under center. So they're minimizing their own window. So it just seemed like even though they had a goal in mind, everything was done backwards, inefficiently. And uh, I feel bad because the fans, I think, okay, they were fine with round one. They got a successor, waste of time, whatever. But then the next six rounds to not come away with any receiver despite this draft seeing the most wide receivers drafted in NFL draft history tying with 36 off the board is just insanity considering the Packers need entering it. Yeah, for sure. The Packers draft in general is very bizarre. Another thing I noticed about what they did, I, I tweeted about this yesterday. If you look at the positions they took, they took one of everything. They didn't double down on any positions. They didn't like notice like some major need that they needed to rectify or some strength that they wanted to build upon by drafting depth there. They drafted like one of those fantasy owners in, in your leagues that make sure they have a full starting roster, you know, all the way down through kicker, defense, and tight end before they even worry about addressing depth. And I thought that that was also pretty telling about the Packers. Now, my big takeaway from the draft, and this kind of piggybacks off what you're talking about in terms of teams going best player available, not necessarily drafting based upon need, is this trend and it's been going on for a little while where pretty much every position is becoming committeefied or committified if that makes sense like more and more committees across positions where we wouldn't necessarily see that right we already knew this was the case for running backs evidenced again in 2020 by Baltimore adding JK Dobbins to an already crowded backfield with Mark Ingram Gus Edwards and Justice Hill the Rams adding Cam Akers to Daryl Henderson and Malcolm Brown and so on right plenty of other teams also added rushers when they didn't necessarily need to and don't worry listeners we're going to address those backfields later in the show but perhaps more important is the trend we're seeing of more sp spread out projected usage at wide receiver, right? The Broncos could have picked Jerry Judy and then moved on to address other positions with their draft picks, but they went right back to wide receiver in the second round with KJ Hamler. And oh, by the way, they still have Cortland Sutton, right? Meanwhile, the Cowboys drafted CeeDee Lamb, like you said, when they already have Amari Cooper and Michael Gallup. Admittedly, it was probably just a screw over the Eagles more than anything else, if we're being honest. But regardless, this depth and diversification of offensive weapons seems to be more important to coaches than ever. So identifying where the true workhorses exist, both at running back and at wide receiver, I think has become one of these key cruxes of fantasy analysis. Like, you can't just look at a wide receiver's measurables and his college production and assume that that guy's going to get 140 targets in his sophomore or junior season in the NFL, right? These targets are going to be more spread out across many different players. And it's not just targets, it's handoffs and little swing passes and whatnot. Like offenses are getting more creative and they're spreading the ball around more. And that's going to make these high volume players at every position just bigger and bigger unicorns, right? It's something that the great Sigmund Bloom has hinted at this offseason. I've, I've listened to a ton of On the Couch and Football Guys podcast. 
And he's mentioned it a lot being the death of the wide receiver one, as he so poetically put it, as he always does. And it stands out when you do these early best ball and offseason leagues as well, because everyone's trying to get a leg up on back-to-back running back, especially at the end of the first round, rather than leaning towards Devontae Adams and Tyreek Hill, who are extremely explosive, 150, 200 target guys, right? But at the same time, the lack of the position at running back in particular, um, now with it being top-heavy, like we need that. And thus, with receiver not with receivers not having really a true wide receiver ones across the board, we can wait and grab a bunch of the middle round guys and hope for the best. Even if you're just ranking them as opposed to offensive system, you can definitely get by, especially in ball and best ball leagues with spiked weeks playing it like that. Yeah, I love that, and I, I think that that's kind of the big takeaway for me from a fantasy analysis an- angle here is that. To identify those unique players who are going to see high volume. Like, we probably won't even see Michael Thomas put up another Michael Thomas season on par with 2019. But if we can identify where those big high volume seasons are going to come from, that's a huge step towards winning your fantasy league. Coming out of the draft, John, what do you think is the best piece of advice to give fantasy owners as we're all reacting or maybe overreacting to the draft? I've thought about this a lot, and I think I'm actually fine Despite all these tremendous talents coming out this year, I'm actually fine taking an L on most of them if they emerge. Just the status of life right now and the fact these guys literally won't be able to run a single route with their own quarterbacks until September is going to hurt wide receivers. It's going to tremendously hurt tight ends. All these first-year players we're high on. So I am concerned with receivers in particular who can't manufacture their own touches. Like a, a guy like Brandon Ayuk, I, I'm still high on. I don't know if it results in fantasy production, but for his own team, I believe he can be successful immediately just because he's more of a shallow guy, like 11 yards after the catch, an elite number in college who does most of his work uh, in the flats and underneath. So yeah, I, I just think unless you are good in those shallow and flats, it's going to be destructive it's going to be so hard to find a rhythm with on your own team given the lack of work and reps you will have and the lack of continuity in general with everyone around you yeah that makes a lot of sense now is there any rookie in particular who bucks that trend for you maybe an outlier who you still are going to be willing to go in heavy-handed on in your drafts i still like denzel mems a lot honestly only because the lack of competition uh, you know, if we're, we're talking about the lack of continuity with Denzel Mims working with Sam Darnold, we have to say the same thing for Prashad Perryman. And sure. beh- behind those two, it's only Josh Dotson, who we're not worried about. So one of those two emerge. So why can't it be the uber athlete who fantasy nerds are higher on? I understand the NFL wasn't as high on him as we were, but we've also been right several times in this position, especially when someone shows those elite traits. And the fact is, they don't have anyone outside of Perryman even for two receiver sets, who is a run down the boundary, lob him a 50-50 opportunity and let him go get it kind of guy. And that's what Denzel Mims is. Mims like literally gets turned on by a physical competition. Like if someone is shoving him, he loves that. And they don't have that. So just the lack of bodies that can do that for the Jets with a wild arm like, like Sam Darnold's, I think still benefits him in this case. All right, so now that we've gotten into some player-specific analysis, let's just jump right into the positions. We're going to go through them, running back, wide receiver, quarterback, tight end. Uh, Starting with the running backs, let's look at the veterans first. Which veteran RB do you think is the biggest winner coming out of the draft? 
It took so many injuries for Miles Sanders to step into the spotlight. But over the last eight games for Philadelphia, still 72% snap rate, 14 and a half carries, 5.1 targets per game in that span. And they didn't add a single player at that position. He has still has Boston Scott and Elijah Holyfield behind him. But the fact is they lost Darren Sproles and they lost Jay Ajayi. So Sanders, even if it is a committee, and I expect it to be, Sanders is really the reason why you should have been jumping into best ball leagues pre-draft in the first place. Because he was going in the middle of the second round, and he should have been going at the end of the first round. And now if you've seen it just over the past 72 hours since the draft ended, he's actually been going at the end of the first round, like around that 10 to 12 spot. So if you jumped into leagues early, you already get a discount on them just taking educated guesses, which is why I absolutely love and I love discussing it. I love talking about it. I love partaking in it. I love pre-draft best ball and just either being extremely right or wrong, kind of like how you play DFS right. You just take your spikes, and that makes you ROI long term. Um, I love pre-draft best ball for that reason, and Sanders was such a huge winner for everything listed. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, I was the did everything wrong pre-draft person. I was drafting Darrell Henderson and Malcolm Brown. Oh, I got and Mark so Ingram. Yeah. Henderson, so don't worry about it. it, it it's a mess. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree with you on Sanders. Uh, him, Todd Gurley, and David Montgomery were at the top of my list of candidates here because they're all still their teams running back ones by default. Like they, those teams didn't draft anyone to compete with them for touches. And so I think that makes them all big winners. The only other two running backs I want to throw out here are the Niners guys, Raheem Mostert and Tevin Coleman, with Matt Breda traded to Miami and the Niners not drafting any new running backs. I think it's kind of wheels up for Mostert and Coleman because we know the Niners can run the ball. We know they want to run the ball. I think big things are in store for for both of those guys as a kind of a one-two punch committee. Now, the biggest loser among veteran running backs is probably going to come from that group that are set to be replaced by the top rookies who were drafted at the position, right? Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, DeAndre Swift, Jonathan Taylor, J.K. Dobbins, Cam Akers. And we'll get to those losers in a bit. But first, of those top three running backs at the rookie position, Edwards-Hilaire, Swift, and Jonathan Taylor, which one of them do you think has the most value in a vacuum for 2020? We're talking redraft only. So the tier one is Clyde the Glide or... Fresh Prince of Hilaire, or whatever you want to do, and uh, Jonathan Taylor, and that's tier one in itself. And both of them had valid arguments given their offenses. Um, however, for year one, I at least go with the guy who only has an unproven running back in front of him and Clyde Edwards Hilaire. Like Damian Williams, don't get me wrong, 10 touchdowns over the past two playoff runs. But remember, this is a guy who still hasn't handled over 150 carries in a regular season. Um, he still, in six years in the league, just hasn't proved he can hold up or be a true factor down the stretch. So we know Hilaire, his specialty is receiving game. 55 catches just last year in that Joe Brady offense. So we have to love the best receiving back among this class, playing with the best quarterback in the league, and any additional early down touches are just the cherry on top. I don't know what's going to happen. But given the bodies behind Damian Williams and Edward Slayer, who now we know has a first round investment in him, right? First round draft capital. Yep. You're not you're no longer worried about DeAndre Washington. You're no longer worried about Daryl Williams, who was good in his own right. He spiked, he spiked two top 15 running back weeks last year whenever Damian Williams was injured. But his role was that third down role, and there is not a chance the Chiefs just invested a first-round pick and a third-down back to take him off the field for Daryl Williams. So you just you know what you're getting with Edwards Hilaire with the range of outcomes being an RB1, higher upside. Having said that, 
Although I do have him over Jonathan Taylor short-term in 2020, I don't have him in the second round just yet. And the fact is, that's where he's going to best ball league since the draft. Um, and that's just not like the uh, recreational drafter. That's among some of the brightest minds who uh, I typically draft with high stakes in. I see him going that high. And so maybe it is wrong for me to have that opinion since these guys are have been much more successful than me over a long period of time. But I can't bite the bullet on Edwards or Hilaire's second round just yet. No, I think that's fair because one thing that we know is that Andy Reid has frustrated us with running back committees Mm-hmm. In the past, right? That's something we've seen him do his entire coaching career. And for that reason, I think I actually prefer Jonathan Taylor in year one. He's the only Colts running back who has potential three down upside. We know we're not getting that from Marlon Mack or from Naheem Hines, you know, for opposite reasons, right? And we know that the team wants to run the ball behind that offensive line they have, which is just oppressive, you know, against opposing defenses. So for me, year one, I do think I want Taylor. Now, let's talk longer term, dynasty outlook. Would you rather have a different top three running back for the long haul? There are so many caveats for the big four, I put them. Um, And let's talk about H quickly. I know we're limited on time, but I think it's important to talk about all. So uh, Damian Williams or Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. It really just depends on 2021 and what Edwards-Hilaire does and how he's treated on early downs. But either way, we know in his rookie deal, he's guaranteed to play with the best quarterback in the league. That's four years of prime production with Patrick Mahomes. That's worth something. That's worth sticking around the top two among these, I think, no matter what. Jonathan Taylor 2020 interesting, but really 2021, now that we know the organization like has already squashed the idea of uh, extending Marlon Mack next year, if Mack is gone and there's only Naheem Hines there for pass-catching role, we can already throw Taylor into 250-plus carries in 2021, making him a arguably top 10, top 12 option for next year. So uh, that in itself is also worth something. For DeAndre Swift, it's really interesting because – He's his strength was his his pass catching game, and that's exactly how Georgia used him. They moved him all over the formation, even out wide. He only recorded three drops and 9.1 yards per catch on 73 73 career catches at Georgia. But we also know Matt Patricia prefers a four headed committee. However, if this experiment fails and Matt Patricia is gone next year because he hasn't been proven successful as a head coach just yet. What if it becomes a competition in 2021? What if DeAndre Swift is suddenly allowed to uh, be an every-down workhorse or at least compete for that role? Suddenly, his ceiling becomes high because he's a proven successful player in the passing game. And then, of course, J.K. Dobbins is the most obvious one to be a 2021 just smash play because Mark Ingram was always the hardest fringe RB2 to rank. Yeah, mid-RB2, mid I should say. High-end, low-end RB3, whatever. Um, because he turns 31 in December and because the team actually has a team friendly out taking on less than 2 million in dead cap space next year if they release him. So Dobbins is just to the moon pretty much no matter what in 2021. The only thing we can't argue is his 2020 role. And I think he will be a high yards per carry guy a la Gus Edwards. But the fact is Gus Edwards is still there. So it's really hard to pin him for a role this upcoming season. So I'm going to take Jonathan Taylor, having said all that, as my top one beyond this year. But afterwards then, I probably rank them Dobbins and then Edwards Hilaire. Yeah, I think it's all really close. Like you said, you're splitting hairs between a lot of these guys. And you and I are going to flip-flop on both these answers. For 2020, you wanted 
Edwards Hilaire, I want a Jonathan Taylor. And in yep. for long term, I think I want Edwards Hilaire. Oh, I think the long term case for him is still pretty strong. Like you noted, he's still tied to Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes. And if the reports are to be believed, the team's selection of Clyde Edwards Hilaire was blessed personally by Mahomes. That gives me uh, a lot of hope for his you know long term career. His skills as a receiver give him three down upside. We already know that. And he doesn't have that same wear and tear on him from college that Jonathan Taylor does. You could also make the argument that because Jonathan Taylor proved he could hold up in college, maybe that means he's going to be able to hold up better in the pros. I tend to believe it's the opposite, right? The reason that we see running backs kind of die off in fantasy after age 30 is just based on the pure volume of touches and volume of hits that they're taking. And the fact that Jonathan Taylor absorbed so many of those over all the carries he accumulated in college does give me some pause for him long-term. And that's why I would go with Edward Solaire. Now, with that said, the case you make for Dobbins is a really strong one. I think that he's kind of the dark horse in this discussion because, like you said, Ingram is going to be gone eventually. You want a running back who is tied to a strong rushing quarterback like Lamar Jackson. I think that that's a really good uh, take by you there. Now, let's talk about some of the incumbents that these rookies are supplanting. Do you think any of the veteran incumbents in Kansas City, Detroit, or Indianapolis can manage to hold or maintain some fantasy value now that these rookies are breathing down their necks? Damian Williams is an interesting one because it's going to come down to his early down workload since we can almost guarantee that Edward Tillier is going to get third down reps. Uh, but then again, like I said earlier, Damian Williams, the past two seasons with Kansas City, 161 total regular season carries. Yes, 53 catches, but again, if we can pencil in Edward Tillier to that role, then what does that even mean? So, And we've seen that, by the way, since the draft. Damian Williams has thus dropped to RB25 overall in best ball leagues last I checked. And I, I think that's about right since he is a dwindling option now. Uh, on Johnson, I would argue, has upside, of course, but he was never really a strong option given how Matt Patricia runs that role and that position in particular. Like Johnson has missed 14 of a possible 32 games since he came into the league as the number 43 overall pick. He just can't stay on the field. And the fact that they don't use him in passing down roles at all, and we know he's not going to get that role over DeAndre, who was better in college and is likely going to be better at that role as a receiver in the NFL. So again, I'm not really high on carry on Johnson either. The interesting one, for Taylor is Marlon Mack because yes, Marlon Mack has not been used as a receiving back. Only 1.6 targets per game in the two years since Naheem Hines has been drafted with the team. But you go back to South Florida, Marlon Mack was a receiving back. He does have 65 career catches. He did average 7.7 yards per catch and they actually moved him all around, including out wide. So I do wonder, Hines is useful by the way, Hines is a special player who's a, a field tipping special teams talent. But if Marlon Mack has already proven at the college level that he can be a receiving back, I do wonder if that's the role we get him involved in this year. That's just speculation, and we don't have any proof of Reich wanting to do that the last two years. But I think it's something that uh, at least we should consider now that we know he's not going to be re-signed with the team and thus won't be useful to them in 2021 and beyond. 
Yeah, I think Damian Williams is going to still have some value. As I noted previously, Andy Reid has a habit of splitting work among his running backs. And Damian Williams, despite the limited workload that he's had that you hinted at, he's been awesome when he's been healthy and playing. I just don't think they're going to simply forget about that production and those skills from Williams and turn everything over to Edwards Hilaire right away. At the very least, Williams is one of you know the crucial handcuff picks in best ball leagues that if he's down at RB25 and someone else in your best ball league drafted Edwards Hilaire, you can scoop up Damian Williams. And I mean, we don't root for injuries, but you know if it just so happens that Edwards Hilaire doesn't hold up in his first season, Damian Williams is right back in that same role that we envisioned him in prior to the draft. Wouldn't it be funny, by the way, if... If Edward Slayer, uh, he gets most of the work, and thus Damian Williams gets dropped and redraft in normal, regular season fantasy leagues, and then <laughs> Damian Williams becomes the guy we always pick up behind him in December. I could see it. And that's the thing is running back is is like that across the board. It's not just in Kansas City. It's in a, a position that is defined by attrition, and these guys have value still because of that. I think that Kerryon Johnson and Marlon Mack have similar kind of handcuffy type value. But I agree with you about Hines. I think he's probably the the sneaky winner of all these veteran guys because if there is a weakness to Jonathan Taylor's game, it's catching the football. He wasn't asked to do it too much in college. And while you noted that Mack did get that sort of work in college, he hasn't been used like that in the NFL, and that worries me. So I I think that that is the part of the game where Hines can shine. And so I could see him maintaining sporadic usage as a satellite back. And that does make him more of a a potential best ball option than a season-long option in fantasy because it's going to be tough to know when Hines' useful weeks are going to pop up. But I do think that they could be there in some capacity, although I wouldn't invest a high pick in it. In general, I think that all of these guys take a big hit uh, on Kansas City, Detroit, and Indy. But, you know, they still have that handcuff appeal and that satellite back appeal in the formats that reward those type of roles. Now, let's talk about some of these other committees that have been created through the draft. How are you approaching the Rams backfield now that Cam Akers has been added to the veteran duo of Darrell Henderson and Malcolm Brown? Is this uh, is this where we pour one out for Darrell Henderson together since we both got it wrong? We can. I think it's, it's about time. Unfortunately, I mean, you just have to like Akers above the rest. Um, not only is Cam Akers, who can't even legally drink, by the way, until June, not only was he the youngest back in this class, uh, he's nearly a full two years younger than Daryl Henderson. He's only been in the league for one full season. And the Rams just simply invested more in him. The Rams traded up 24 spots. They traded the number 94 and 99 picks to move up to number 70 overall to draft Daryl Henderson last year. Doesn't matter at all because they drafted Cam Akers with the number 52 overall pick, despite positions of need, like players of need, I should say, like Ezra Cleveland, like Matt Pert, like Josh Jones, all being there on the board at the same time. So it was clearly a player they eyed. And more importantly, Akers is familiar running behind poor offensive line play. Florida State had one of the worst offensive lines in terms of creating the lanes for Akers, and yet he still produced massive production in his final year in college. And he's going to get the same treatment likely behind this Rams O-line. But I think you have to like Akers quite a bit in redraft just because they invested so much in him and he's already familiar with the scheme, whereas we saw Daryl Henderson in the preseason, he notched under half of Malcolm Brown's touches in the regular season just because what he showed in those four or five debut games, he clearly was not used to running in a one-cut zone stretch scheme. He struggled immensely. And so we don't know if that's going to happen this year. I still think Daryl Henderson is amazing talent, but the fact is Cam Akers is ready to roll immediately. I really like that point you made about Akers being accustomed to a poor offensive line. 
because it was the opposite for Henderson in college. He mm-hmm. had huge lanes to run through, and maybe that's part of why he struggled in year one. Maybe he turns it around a little bit. I don't know. Overall, this is just a mess. I, I would love, honestly, I'd love to see Thunder and Lightning. Daryl Henderson is such a unique talent. Um, he's such a special player. I would love to see Cam Akers do like just all the, the lightning fast uh, agility style of running in your zone stretch scheme and then just make Daryl Henderson the the up the gut, just bull hammer. Like, God, it's, they could be such a unique combination depending on what this offense does. Yeah, I'm still interested in Henderson and Brown if their draft costs stay low enough because I do think the pandemic situation might slow Akers' ability to get up to speed. We've talked about that a little bit on the show already, but there's just no longer a fantasy floor for either Henderson or Brown, and that's really scary when you're looking at potentially drafting one of those players. You hinted at the situation in Baltimore with J.K. Dobbins being selected in the second round to them. How do you view their backfield now that he's in play? It's just a little bit of a mess. Uh, if you had avoided Mark Ingram to this point, which I, I know you said you didn't earlier, I'm sorry, but uh, then you you outright win this offseason. It just seems like one that's shaping up to honestly be, whereas all of them share carries. Justice Hill, we know will get carries. He's going to be the pass-catching back. However, J.K. Dobbins proved he could do that at Ohio State as well. And Justice Hill, like we saw, he only got involved in the games that Mark Ingram was absent for or the games like the the Titans playoff game where they were blown out. So there's no reason to believe he'll be involved in this offense whatsoever, despite his immense talent uh, and electricity out of the backfield. So I I just think it's a timeshare. And if you're betting on one, you're betting on J.K. Dobbins just because of his youth, despite, as you mentioned, his touch share from college. Yeah, this definitely gives me some concerns for Ingram, you know, based upon his age, based upon the long-term health outlook for him. But I'm still okay with drafting him where he's going to go at cost this year because, barring injury, I don't think he's going to go away completely. He knows this offense. He's well-versed in it. He's going to be able to get right back into the groove of things once the league starts back up. But I do think the Dobbins pick puts a major pall over Justice Hill and especially Gus Edwards because those guys were already scrapping to get touches. And now with high draft capital invested in a rookie running back, I just don't know if they're going to get that outside of an injury either to Ingram or to Dobbins. In redraft leagues, John, would you rather pick a player like Akers or Dobbins, guys who are going to be in some sort of committee based upon their talent, based upon their higher draft capital, or would you rather dig a little deeper in draft capital and pick a guy like Keyshawn Vaughn, who went in the beginning of the third round to Tampa Bay, where he's going to have a much clearer path to playing time? What's your preference there in terms of betting on you know, the, the high investment versus the, the clear path to touches? Vaughn is one of those guys who I would love to get pieces of, but he's going to end up going too high for him, for my liking, just because he's going to be treated as a de facto number one running back, and it's just not the case. We know Ronald Jones is actually younger than Vaughn to this day right now, and yes, Ronald Jones, when asked to pass block last year, 49 pass blocking snaps and a horrendous sack, two hits, and five hurries allowed on those 45 snaps, yeah. But the thing is, uh, you know, like I said, Ronald Jones is younger. Ronald Jones is at least a somewhat proven talent. He was better than Peyton Barber, and I, I know that shouldn't be the bar for anyone, but he was at least better than Peyton Barber, and given the continuity, he's familiar with the scheme and just uh, the the audibles to be pass blocking for Tom Brady. So I think it's interesting, and I do like Vaughn, but again, I think he's going to be treated as the number one over Ronald Jones throughout the offseason, and I don't think that's clear, especially with 
we're not going to hear his name mentioned often, but remember, like, Dare is still the third down running back until proven otherwise. And I don't mention his last name because I always mess it up, so I'm going to forget it. But we know he, until Vaughn proves he can take that role, Dare is the pass-catching back. So it's still kind of a befuddled mess that I don't think we should be putting a foot down and saying this guy is definitely the number one because that's how we're going to to make an error and make mistakes and overdrafting one of them. Now, I shouldn't put you on the spot because I couldn't pronounce Dare's last name on command uh, either. Is that how you do it? But, but I was going to ask, do you know how to spell it at the very least? I assume that uh, you can spell it right every time. No, uh, I'm going to try though. Can I try real quick? Uh, please, please do. This is riveting. O-G-U-N-B-O-W-A-L-E. Okay, we'll check that after the fact, and because uh, I'm not going right to look it up right now. <laughs> anyway, that, that's that's good stuff on Vaughn. I, I do think that he's interesting. Oh, I got it right. I got it nice. Right. It, that it, he is interesting based upon that kind of lack of competition in the Bucks backfield from Ronald Jones. Like I think the time on Ronald Jones has passed. If he was going to be something at the NFL level, he would have shown us more by now, and that's why I'm interested in Vaughn. But I like that you brought up Dari. I didn't really think about that when I was evaluating this question. But remember the. Remember, though, we say he should show us more by now, but it was only his second year. He still hasn't turned 23. And his first year, we can throw out the window. Like, was he a second-round value? No. It, that's just Jason Light being Jason Light. We know that by now. But remember, he was so young in that age 21 season. Like, it was very well known he was eating heavy cheeseburgers and put on 15 pounds before the year. He was just completely immature. And so he at least showed he's past that in year two. I don't think he's an immense talent. I don't think he's like a physical profile guy. But I also don't want to write him off when he's not even 23 yet, to be fair. Yeah, that's very fair. Um, are there any other... Guys you want to highlight of among the rookies who we haven't discussed yet, either as players who you think are standalone assets or in terms of the impact that they're going to have on their veteran teammates? There are a couple quick hitters that I would like to like more, but it's going to take some help. Uh, Darrington Evans, for instance, is a pass catching back for the Titans. And he his role, he is so good at that receiving game role that it likely ensures Derrick Henry, again, will never be used in that role as an every-down running back. Um, however, we also know Derrick Henry takes all other carries. So Darrington Evans has a singular role, and if this offense performs the way it did last year, he likely won't see the field, as Deion Lewis never saw the field uh, unless there was that one game where Derrick Henry was injured. So that's one that I wish it was easier, but it's hard. Yeah, but w- one thing to note with Evans, and Derrick Henry's name was already swirling around in trade rumors, right? His contract is set to expire after the 2020 season. For, for dynasty purposes, I think that's where Evans gets really interesting. Because, absolutely. You're absolutely correct. Thank you for adding that, yeah. Because he has that receiving threat capability, makes him immediate, gives him an immediate path to playing time this season, and then longer term, it's very easy to envision him as the RB1 for Tennessee starting in 2021. And by the way, I would be fine uh, treating it as if he won't have a role at all in 2020, but in 2021, he's suddenly an RB2. Like, I'm okay treating it like that. Um, is it Lamical or LaMichael? I've seen both ways pronounced, and I've seen the apostrophe on different networks. LaMichael is how I would pronounce it, but I have not done my research on that. Okay, well, let's just go LaMichael. I'm sorry to his mother if she's listening. Uh, LaMichael P. Ryan is, again, a back who can put himself on the field for his receiving game chops. The only thing is Le'Veon Bell handled 77% of the snaps. Why I like P. Ryan, though, is because his only competition would, would be Trenton Cannon. Um, or, or is did Elijah McGuire resign there? I can't recall. Um, 
I think he did. Either way, though, there is not much competition like Josh Adams and uh, Trenton Cannon for that receiving game role. So he's an option if Le'Veon Bell gets injured immediately. Two that I think have option this year in redraft leagues. One is Anthony McFarlane. Uh, Anthony McFarlane for the Steelers averaged 8.2 yards per carry in his freshman year, but only totaled 500 touches in high school and college due to injuries. Uh, James Conner's a success story in his own right, right? Like, don't get me wrong. Yeah. However, however, the fact of the matter is he exited seven games early with seven different injuries last year. And the team has already squashed the idea of re-signing him. And the thing is, Anthony McFarland is opposite Benny Snell. Benny Snell's an early down between the tackles, A.J. Dillon-like grinder who's smaller. Uh, Benny Snell only offered fantasy value because he was their goal line running back last year. And perhaps that's the case again. But Anthony McFarland is a one-cut home run hitter that no one else, even Jalen Samuels, can do that role. So I am actually very interested to see the, the role that McFarland cuts out for himself in this offense. And then one more, DJ Dallas immediately. Yes. Uh, Dallas had only one drop in his career, and he I expect him to be Seattle's third down running back immediately, given that CJ Procise and Marshawn Lynch, Procise in particular, were not brought back. But remember, Chris Carson dislocated his hip. And although he's on track for week one, we don't know. And Rashad Penny tours ACL, and they've already said they're very skeptical about him in week one, more like expecting him the next month of the regular season. So if there's only uh, 50% Chris Carson and Travis Homer standing in DJ Dallas's way, Travis Homer is not a pass catching back. That's not his role. So DJ Dallas automatically has a role with a range of outcomes as an 8 to 10 carry guy on top of that. Yeah, for sure. Chris Carson, Rashad Penny both have those durability concerns that you noted. And this is the same old story with the Seahawks, right? They take these little known running backs we've barely ever heard of, if ever, and they turn them into proven, capable starters in fantasy. I, I can totally see it with DJ Dallas. Let's move into wide receiver, though. Starting with winners and losers among veterans again, which veteran wide receiver do you think is the biggest winner coming out of the draft? Alan Lazard and Kill Harry are a few of the obvious ones since their team's added pretty much no one to disrupt their roles. But let's go uh, off the board a little bit. Uh, think about Robert Woods' timeline this offseason, okay? Uh, he was already someone to project for positive regression after he scored eight fewer touchdowns, 10-2, to two, to Cooper Cup, despite finishing with a team high in air yards over Cooper Cup and a team high in target share over Cooper Cup. So we already loved Robert Woods, but then the Rams go and trade Brandon Cooks, right? And then they go and add Van Jefferson, who didn't have 700 receiving yards in any of his five seasons in college. So, and we know Cooper Cup, if they are going to play this tw more 12 personnel and get Gerald Everett and Tyler Higby on the field together and use Cam Akers and Daryl Henderson in a, in a combo role, Cooper Cup is not a, a guy who can beat outside talent consistently. He's a superb slot receiver who they will force to the outside. Robert Woods is just a better fit because he's successively played both in the NFL. So literally everything spells to draft Robert Woods far over his RB, his wide receiver 20-plus uh, range right now. I could be wrong here. But I have been actually drafting Robert Woods as the wide receiver 13 to 15, and I think I'm going to get value on that because there's literally not a single knock against his offseason thus far. 
Yeah, for all the mistakes I made in my pre-draft best balls, Robert Woods being higher on my board than other people's was one of the things I did get right, and I totally agree with you on him. A couple other names to throw at you. Um, I think that Adam Thielen is a sneaky winner coming out of this. The Vikings adding Justin Jefferson just means that the opposing defense can't ignore the side of the field opposite Thielen, right? Like Thielen's going to have a little bit more room to operate because they actually have a second receiver now. Uh, What do you think about Thielen's outlook in 2020? Oh, yeah. Thielen is a dark horse candidate to lead the league in targets. Uh, The thing with Justin Jefferson is he's not competing for the wide receiver two or wide receiver three role. So he is a small winner because they just don't have the competition there anymore. Uh, I guess Chad Beebe and Ola B.C. Johnson. I don't don't care about those guys. No offense to them. Um, It's still going to be Justin Jefferson who played. 18% 18% slot route only in 2018, but then burst out playing the 79% slot role in that national championship offense in 2019. So he's proven across two seasons he can do both successfully. Uh, so they can squeeze him anywhere as their de facto number two receiver. But we know Adam Thielen is still the number one who has a proven rapport with Kirk Cousins over two years. Yep, and you're getting that injury discount with him. Mm -hmm. Um, Another guy you might be getting a slight injury discount on is Odell Beckham, and I think him and his teammate Jarvis Landry can both be considered winners coming out of the draft. There's still that condensed target distribution in Cleveland. I think it's going to stay intact because the Browns only added one receiver. It was Donovan Peoples-Jones, and he was the sixth rounder. That's not really going to move the needle for Odell Beckham and Jarvis Landry. Those guys are still going to get a ton of targets, even if that offense is a little bit more run-heavy this year, don't you think? Uh, I'll tell you what moves the needle. The third most air yards, the fourth most end zone targets, the 15th most wide receiver targets, and yet overall wide receiver 25 finish. Beckham, yes, prime two reclaim his spot as a top 12 wideout. Who's the biggest loser among veteran wideouts for you? I mean, the easiest one is honestly uh, Tyrell Williams, just yes. because of what the Raiders added on offense. And quite and quite frankly, I think we need to discuss Cortland Sutton a little more as well. Sutton's a tremendous talent, but the fact is he was the wide receiver 14 overall working with Joe Flacco. And then in Drew Locke's five starts, he only had one top 38 finish in that span. Uh, Drew Locke kind of drugged them down, and now they added all these other special names like Jerry Judy and K.J. Hamler and Albert O. to go along with them. So I think it becomes a more mouse to feed, and it hinges far too much on Drew Locke in his second year for Cortland Sutton to, to be a reliable weekly wide receiver one or strong wide receiver two. But but quickly moving back to Tyrell Williams, he did have that five-game streak with touchdowns, but those weren't predicated on feeding him with targets. He was still averaging around four targets per game in that stretch. He just got downfield targets, and we know Derek Carr doesn't throw downfield. But now he has an elite talent in Henry Ruggs on the other side. We have Lynn Bowden, who they're going to mix in at every position on the field because that's what Lynn Bowden does. And uh, Brian Edwards, of course, a fantasy sleeper, getting involved as well on go routes. So Tyra Williams, unlike last year, is just no longer the only receiver, literally the only one they could throw downfield to. He now has two people cannibalizing those targets. Yep, Tyrell Williams was on my list. Cortland Sutton was on my list. I think that those questions that you have about Drew Locke's overall ability totally make sense because if you're looking at like what Dallas did when they drafted CeeDee Lamb and you could call Michael Gallup a loser, at least Michael Gallup still has Dak Prescott throwing him the ball, right? I, I just don't have that same warm and fuzzy feeling when Drew Locke is the quarterback who's supposed to be getting the ball to Jerry Judy, to Noah Fant, to K.J. Hamler, and to Cortland Sutton. Like I just don't think that that's going to play out in a consistent and 
predictable enough way for fantasy owners to take advantage. I, I agree that Sutton is definitely one of the sneaky losers here, despite the fact that he's an ascending player. The only other guys I want to throw out here are the former wide receiver two and three in some order from Jacksonville, D.D. Westbrook and Chris Conley. LaVisca Chenault cost the Jaguars significantly more draft capital than those other two. He's just a better prospect than both Westbrook and Conley. I, I think that we have to downgrade both of them. And I think the needle's pointing up for Chenault and also for DJ Chark. The needle's pointing up, but I'm still curious as to how they will disperse him. Getting rid of Marquise Lee, I would imagine Chenault plays more both outside with Chris Conley and pushes D.D. Westbrook away as a full-time slot receiver. But, man, we just need to know about this offense in general because it's not going to be Fournette, most likely. We're likely looking at Reichel Armstead in the backfield. And per PFF, only 25% of Chenault's targets traveled beyond 10, yard, 10, 10 yards of the line of scrimmage with Colorado because he played uh, a gadget shallow role with that offense. So it's just a it's a unique one that I still believe in DJ Shark. I use the word rapport in a lot in this podcast because I truly think it makes a difference this year. I think we have to nitpick with players who have already have continuity with their quarterbacks since these other guys are just stepping in and hoping for the best. But we know DJ Shark is a downfield threat with Gardner Minshew in particular. And we know Gardner Minshew was literally the quarterback 10 overall. He was a number one quarterback in his first nine starts before being moved to the bench and coming off cold and having to do it all over again. So uh, I have faith in Gardner Minshew, especially given his rushing upside. But I somewhat worry about Chenault still in his first year in this offense. Let's get back to the Raiders because it was a bit surprising to me to see Henry Ruggs as the first wideout selected by an NFL team. And I'm curious about where you think he should go in dynasty rookie drafts, because I would slot him maybe in the late first round, maybe even the early second round. And I'd like to be more aggressive in fading his rookie ranking, but that draft capital that he commanded as that first wide receiver off the board gives me some fear of missing out on him. Like, is it foolish to rank him behind Jalen Ragor and Justin Jefferson? I don't think so. But my gut reaction is also to put Ruggs behind day two guys like Michael Pittman and T. Higgins and Brandon Ayuk and LaVisca Chenault. And that's probably too aggressive. I admit that because I'm putting too much weight on Derek Carr as being a bad quarterback fit with Ruggs. But I don't think Carr is long for the starting quarterback world. So I, I have to project more uncertainty for the wide receiver's quarterback pairing there, right? And that means more long-term upside for Ruggs. And besides, even on a bad Raiders team in year one with a bad quarterback, be it Carr, Marcus Mariota, whoever else, Henry Ruggs does figure to be the top target outside of maybe Darren Waller. And I think that does give Ruggs a pretty safe floor. So I, I don't know, I'm waffling on where to slot him among rookies uh, in, in my rookie rankings. Where do you think he, Henry Ruggs belongs? I think you spoke around it because I have heard that Derek Carr is a winner given the explosive players that the Raiders drafted. But it's not his game. But I think we're doing it wrong. I think we should we should be treating Marcus Mariota as the winner because these guys just don't fit with Derek Carr. And we know Derek Carr is not going to have what like a, a seventh year breakout. Like I'm I'm not worried about Derek Carr, right? Um, right. I, I do think given that. Mayock and Gruden hunted down Mariota in free agency. We know Mariota was Mayock's number one quarterback on his board when he came out with Jameis Winston. And now suddenly they had a chance to grab him in free agency. I would imagine that Mariota makes a Tannehill-like resurrection and comes off the bench middle of the year 
whenever Derek Carr struggles with these guys because they do not fit his profile. So I'm not even acting as if I'm going to have Derek Carr in 2021, uh, especially because Derek Carr's contract, the dead money in 2027.9 million, um, but it drops to 2.5 in 2021, thus saving the Raiders 20 million by just outright releasing him next offseason. So I, I don't think we see Derek Carr here beyond nine games, and I'm treating it as such. And if Derek Carr is not the guy under center, isn't suddenly Henry Ruggs a guy you want a part of? No, I think that's it. And like I said, it's just hard for me to wrap my brain around it because I haven't seen Mariota be good in how many years. That's and it. I haven't seen Mariota as a part of this Raiders offense. Now, maybe moving to o- Oakland, I keep saying Oakland, maybe moving to Las Vegas is exactly what he needed, a la Ryan Tannehill going to Tennessee, right? I haven't seen it yet, so it's tough for me to wrap my brain around that. That's just the type of fantasy player I am, typically. I, I totally agree with you. Uh, however, given Ruggs' just explosiveness and talent, I, I would prefer not to miss out on it, assuming he's not going to be a Derek Carr. Again, we're making educated guesses. We're trying to uh, we're trying to be ahead of the curve rather than follow the pack. So I'm just making the guess that I only see seven to eight games of Derek Carr, and thus making Henry Ruggs, especially uh, over the second half of the season next year, a tremendous value. So how many wide receivers in this rookie class are you taking over Ruggs at this point? Is it just Judy and Lamb? It's just Judy or Lamb. And that comes and goes. It's hard for me because, again, I like Judy, the most elite route runner among this class. Having said that, again, those are a lot of mouths to feed for Drew Locke. Let's talk a little bit more about this spectrum of wide receiver draft capital versus wide receiver landing spot and and fit within a scheme because I'm wondering how that affects your fantasy evaluations of the next five wide receivers that were drafted. Jerry Judy went at 115, CeeDee Lamb 117, Jalen Rager 121, Justin Jefferson 122, Brandon Ayuk to San Francisco 125. Judy and Lamb were the more coveted prizes leading up to the draft, but all three of the others, Rager, Jefferson, and Ayuk, I think found teams where they're going to have easier paths to immediate playing time. So who from that group are you most interested in just for 2020 for redraft leagues? I like CD lamb a lot just because it's even if they don't report for preseason, the fact is CD lamb is still a proven talent who led the nation in yards per route run from the slot and arguably gets the most established and best quarterback among this group. We know this offense was already humming. It's not normal for a elite offense that finished top five in Football Outsiders' DVOA, right, to get a star wide receiver, arguably the best wide receiver among their class. But it actually happened. They just added talent to what was already a potent attack. And so the fact that we know CeeDee Lamb is going to play every single down uh, and mix in both on the outside and in the slot is a pretty good role for him efficiency-wise. He won't see the same targets that even someone like Rigo or Justin Jefferson will see, but I think he's going. his explosiveness and efficiency will be good enough from Dak. Yeah, I like that call. And I do think Justin Jefferson and Jalen Ragor are the obvious choices kind of based upon that shared status they have as de facto wide receiver twos on their respective teams. And honestly, Ragor could be Philly's wide receiver one if he Rager's plays his cards right. super interesting just because everyone cites his 6.9 yards per target last year. But remember, that was Max Dugan, a true freshman quarterback under center that just absolutely tanked him in his senior season. But Ragor still profiles as a downfield threat that the team lacked without Deshaun Jackson last year. Right. And as much as we want to praise Dak Prescott, and I I do believe he deserves it, I think that Jefferson's getting a good quarterback in Kirk Cousins, maybe not a high-volume quarterback, and Jalen Ragor is getting a good quarterback in Carson Wentz. So I think that there's an argument to be made for all those guys. 
But I do think Ayuk is a dark horse pick, potentially. I, I picked him in a rookie mock draft that we did earlier this week at 444.com, and I wrote him up there. I just love the fit of Ayuk and San Francisco. It seems perfect to me, and I could see him contributing above expectation in his rookie season, just like Debo Samuel did last year. And, and earlier today, I actually heard from one of my buddies back in the Bay Area. He was listening to the local you know, sports talk radio. John Lynch went on there and said that Ayuk and CeeDee Lamb were neck and neck as the top receivers on the 49ers board. Now, I'm not personally willing to take it that far. I think Lamb is the better prospect. But the fact that San Francisco views Ayuk like that makes me believe that he can be productive right away because I think the targets are going to be there. And remember, Ayuk underwent a core muscle surgery on April 7th. So he's still injured, and yet they are not worried at all. They actually traded up to number 25 overall to jump other teams and get him. Ayuk, we mentioned it earlier on the podcast, but an elite 11 yards per catch, 11 yards after the catch per reception. That's just what this offense, how they'll manufacture him. Debo Samuel last year led all receivers in the NFL in rushing yards. And I imagine we will see a similar role for Ayuk and them just getting even more creative this year. Now, if we look beyond redraft and start talking about dynasty, Lamb is definitely the guy for me. For all the reasons you pointed out, he was my favorite wide receiver prospect in this class in the first place. And among this group, he's joining the most complete offense in Dallas. Plus Michael Gallup's dwindling contract situation. And also Amari Cooper has no more guaranteed money left on his deal after 2021. Factor those two things in. Yep. Yep. Lamb just figures to be Dak Prescott's wide receiver one of the future. And that's a fantasy asset I want to invest in. Do you want to make the case for anyone else as a a better long-term play than CeeDee Lamb or no? Michael Pittman Jr. is interesting. Uh, not a better long-term play, but I think he's just an interesting player overall because T.Y. Hilton is approaching his age 31 contract year. And given T.Y. Hilton's injury history, yes, he's been explosive, but he's not a player I look to resign. And if Michael Pittman explodes in his rookie year uh, from Philip Rivers, then we would imagine that they just let T.Y. Hilton walk. So that's an interesting situation. So drilling down a little bit deeper on Rager's situation We have to assume he's going to be the wide receiver one or wide receiver two based upon what Philly spent to get him. But which current Philadelphia wide receivers do you expect to be, you know, you know, fantasy relevant and which will be the odd men out aside from Rigor? Because J.J. Arcega-Whiteside didn't do anything in year one and Alshon Jeffrey, frankly, looks cooked and Deshaun Jackson couldn't stay healthy last year either. Do you envision any of those three continuing to have a role in 2020 or maybe even Greg Ward? Like, what's your take on the wide receiver core for the Eagles aside from Rigor? I mean, we talked about offseason winners, and I think Carson Whitson's an offseason winner too, despite the fact they added Jalen Hurts in the second round for better or worse. Uh, Carson Wentz was playing with a bunch of Walmart greeters down the stretch and yet drugged this team into the playoffs. And then all of a sudden now they had Deshaun Jackson back healthy, we pres- we assume, for a full year. And uh, remember, Carson Wentz averaged eight and a half yards per attempt. The only game he reached over eight yards per attempt and the one game that Deshaun Jackson played all year. Uh, John Hightower is an explosive downfield threat that they got in the draft that's worth monitoring. Marquise Goodwin averaged 8.9 yards per target with the Niners. Couldn't stay on the field, but the fact is he is also a Olympic sprinter. Uh, Miles Sanders, 8.1 yards per target, the third most behind Austin Eckler and Dalvin Cook as a receiving back. And we think Miles Sanders would also still handle over 65% of the team snaps. So he'll be on the field using that talent as well. And then not to mention, uh, you know, Dallas Goddard. And then, of course, uh, Jalen Rager and Zach Ertz. So the offense as a whole is an interesting one. And there are a lot of of mouths to feed. But I like in particular 
Rager to break out as the wide receiver one, perhaps lead this team in targets. Deshaun Jackson to lead in fantasy points because he's still going to have those spiked weeks that make him a top five finisher weekly on, in some cases. Probably after that, I guess to go Sanders or Goddard. We've seen Zach Ertz regress a little bit in the past two years. And if everyone stays healthy, I would think this is the year. It finally dwindles like all the way. Not, not to where he won't be like a top 10 tight end, but I think we see quite a bit of dwindling. So you see this the same way as I do with J.J. Arcega-Whiteside and Alshon Jeffrey kind of being on Not the outs there. Just Jags. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Just guess. So let's talk about some of the rookies from day two. Which guys are most intriguing to you? Oh, uh, I already mentioned Pittman. I wish K.J. Hamler didn't have so many mouths around him to also feed because his potential from the slot as someone who didn't run the 40 at the combine because he was injured, but he could have likely competed with Henry Ruggs for the fastest 40 time. I think we've already discussed it, but Denzel Mims is probably my biggest winner because he very well could lead the Jets in targets or at least in fantasy production, one or the other. And then uh, I'm curious to see what the Ravens do with Devin DuVernay because yeah. there, there's no guarantee he takes over for Willie Sneed. But Devin DuVernay, like, he spiked his most um, explosive season in college in the only year he ran 97% plus, percent plus of his routes from the slot, which was last year. And that one got him on NFL maps. So for him to now enter this potent Ravens offense as a primary slot receiver, uh, it will be interesting to see how they use him. Yeah, he's not an amazing prospect in my mind. I'm worried he might have been just a bit of a compiler in that last season. He got a ton of targets. Mm -hmm. But the Ravens' step turret wide receiver, like you said, it's just wide open. All DuVernay has to do is be solid, and he could end up as the wide receiver, too, for Baltimore. Now, the problem with that is even if he's the wide receiver, too, he might be the fourth, fifth, or sixth option behind the Ravens' other playmakers. But, you know, variance in the form of injuries and trades, etc., could elevate DuVernay over time. On that note, John, how do you kind of factor in that sort of of variance into your fantasy evaluations. Does that question make sense? Yeah, it does. Uh, I think a lot of guys, you have to just step back and say that these players help their teams more than they do fantasy. And that'll help you uh, make your pool much smaller. For instance, like I loved and still do love Antonio Gibson, but the fact is Washington listed him as a receiver. And I don't know how creative they'll be. I have faith that Cal Turner can be creative, but I'm just not sure how creative they can truly be with him, especially if he's only playing receiver, which is a position of need since they don't have pretty much any other explosive option besides Terry McLaurin. Um, same for Lynn Bowden. I, I don't know the what how creative John Gruden can be if Bowden is strictly a running back, but if they get him also involved in a, a heavy dose of wildcat and receiving, then he'll be interesting. But I just think they help their offenses more than the actual fantasy production. Let's go back up the draft board to T. Higgins, who was the first wide receiver drafted on day two. Do you worry about him and the Bengals' other wideouts adjusting to Joe Burrow in, like we've talked about, is going to be an abbreviated or a diluted offseason program? I wouldn't say I worry. So most recent reports and it's still early, so it's just beat writer speculation, but it's worth listening to, are that uh, T. Higgins, as the first pick of day two, will start over John Ross in three wide receiver sets. And that makes sense. Uh, Ross is a super explosive player that no one else, not even A.J. Green healthy, on that team can offer as a lid-lifting threat. But they already did shop John Ross last offseason. 
So they probably aren't interested in keeping him around this year after adding T. Higgins. What I worry about is this team now has six games against the Ravens, Steelers, and Browns. Three of the top, you want. yeah, not only three of the top defenses in the AFC, but just in the NFL in general. So that's my concern for Burrow in a shortened season, not just the fact that uh, he's stepping in without any experience with these receivers. Now you touched on Lynn Bowden. The Raiders also drafted Brian Edwards immediately after they drafted Bowden, and I'm curious what you think about this strategy that the Raiders had to draft three wideouts in the first three rounds. Like, will Henry Ruggs and Bowden and Edwards cannibalize each other to some extent, do you think? We've already talked about how this is RIP Tyrell Williams, but is this extra investment they made at wide receiver a negative impact on Darren Waller? Like, how do you see this Raiders receiving situation playing out? I was actually kind of worried about Darren Waller from the beginning because, remember, whenever Hunter Renfro came back into the lineup like he was inserted as a full-time starter on week nine and he had some games where he was injured and left and Waller capitalized in those but Waller saw five fewer targets per game down the second half of the season whenever they were on the field together and Hunter Renfrew I know he's profiled as just like just a guy right he's just a slot slot receiver who Derek Carr doesn't throw deep so he just threw him the ball a lot but Hunter Renfrew actually finished top 20 among all wideouts in the league in yards per target I'm sorry, not yards per target, yards per route run, which is more predictive than yards per target for fantasy production. So I still think he's an intriguing slot guy uh, to mix in. But Darren Waller has that to compete with. And now Jason Witten, who I don't know his role. I know he played over 90% of the snaps in Dallas, but does John Grudem see him that way? I don't know. And then, of course, uh, Foster Moreau, who was their goal line receiving tight end and 12 personnel. So I, I think there are a lot of targets being taken away from Darren Waller quietly, despite him being a pure receiving explosive threat at the tight end position. And then, yeah, Bowden, I'm curious to see how he pans out. But again, I think he helps the offense more than he does. He, he will return in fantasy. And Brian Edwards, I am curious to watch as a third round dynasty guy, but I don't think he offers value in his rookie year. Yeah, I think if you're a Darren Waller fan, you want to see Derek Carr stick as the quarterback for Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. Because, yes, the Raiders added three wide receivers. But I think the extra pressure on defenses in the deeper quadrants of the field from those receivers is going to help Waller by taking attention away from him. I think part of the reason, in addition to Hunter Renfro's emergence, that Waller kind of took a step back in the second half last year is that defenses realized that he was the only guy that Carr was throwing to. Except the Texans, who they just let him feed. I think it was like 15 (laughs) targets. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. I think this all comes down to who's the QB there. And we've already talked about how we don't think Carr is going to last very long there. But if he does, I think that Darren Waller could still be okay. It, it does remain to be seen. John, any takes on day three wideouts or the impacts they might have on their new NFL teammates? None for fantasy, quite honestly, but a few interesting names that, that I pop up. Uh, uh, Joe Reed for the Chargers, I think, is an interesting player, if only because... Like he had over 2,700 kick return yards, I believe. And he's a player. Those guys, you should emphasize their, their talents to get on the field themselves as opposed to earning, as opposed to fighting competition, because they offer numerous ways to get on the field. And Joe Reed, he can do a, be a gadget receiver. He can be on special teams. He can get on the field no matter what. Tyler Johnson for the Buccaneers, I think is also interesting. Uh, Bruce Arians has used Scotty Miller over Brashad Perryman. Like Scotty Miller was the number three receiver over Justin Watts, over Perryman last year when they were all healthy. But I think Tyler Johnson can be the starting receiver 
with Chris Godwin staying in the slot opposite Mike Evans this year. And there are so many options that offense, especially if OG Howard isn't traded before the year. But Tyler Johnson is a competitive catch guy who on 50-50 balls makes his name. And so like Brady, whatever, however dwindling his arm may or may not be, just hail marrying balls to Tyler Johnson is a plus for him on limited targets. So I think that's an interesting name to watch. Yeah, Bruce Arians has no allegiance to Justin Watson, and Scott Miller and Tyler Johnson were both selected around the same range in the fifth round over the past two drafts. So I think that wide receiver job should be up for grabs. I really like that call. One other player I want to throw out here, I mentioned him earlier. I hinted at this when I discussed Odell Beckham and Jarvis Landry as winners, but Donovan Peoples-Jones has one of the easier potential paths to snaps and targets among these day three rookie receivers. He's competing with Kaderil Hodge, Taewon Taylor, Damian Ratley, and a bunch of other cast-offs to be the Browns wide receiver three. I mean, even if he wins, he's still probably the fifth or sixth option on, in that offense at best behind Beckham, Landry, Austin Hooper, Nick Chubb, Kareem Hunt. And the offense does figure to be run heavy with Kevin Stefanski calling the shots. But, you know, another coaching change down the line, an OBJ trade, injuries, etc. I think those could all potentially unlock more future playing time for Donovan Peoples-Jones. And so I'm like mildly interested in him for that reason. He's another guy who contributed on special teams a little bit in college too, which is worth noting. Interesting. Let's get into quarterbacks, John. Which veteran quarterback is the biggest winner coming out of the draft? We talked a little bit about Carson Wentz already and how I think he's a winner. So I'll go ahead and go off the – well, it's not really off the board, but I, I think Dak Prescott was also a big winner, just adding CeeDee Lamb to that offense. Um, and then another one is Daniel Jones, who isn't being drafted as a top 12 quarterback right now, but very well should be given his rushing floor. They added arguably the best tackle among the big four in the entire league in Andrew Thomas. Um, and, and they have – Cam Fleming, who I know is just a guy, but one of those two guys, Thomas and Fleming, likely knocks off Nate Soldier, who was just a, a guy they needed to get off the field at left tackle. And Cam Fleming only played 13 snaps in the past two years at right tackle for Jason Garrett, who we know is now the Giants OC. But he's still familiar with that scheme, so he can come in even as a swing tackle and make a difference. Uh, Daniel Jones did a lot of things poor. 18 fumbles is absurdly bad. That is the Jameis Winston, but on the ground as opposed to through the air. <laughs> uh, and he did average 10.97 fantasy points in eight starts. But among those 12 starts, not those eight games, the other four, at least 28. He spikes ceilings. And again, I talk about spike ceilings in best ball because that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to mix our bye weeks and get these high performances. And Daniel Jones, especially with the rushing yards, is a guy who can just spike immense floors or immense ceilings in a shootout. And so I really like him as a QB 10 to 12. Yeah, he was on my list as well for those major O-line upgrades that the Giants gave him. Three linemen in the first five rounds. I want to throw a mention to Jarrett Stidham and Gardner Minshew. Mm -hmm. Both those guys didn't have backups drafted behind them, so they're going to enter you know, at least the offseason program as the presumed starters for the whole season. I think that that gives them extra value. Uh, and the other guy I want to throw out here is Jimmy Garoppolo. I know that you've panned him a little bit on this podcast, John, but San Francisco spent four of their five draft picks on offense, including a tackle, two wide receivers, and a tight end. I think that Garoppolo is a little undervalued, actually, based upon you know how he has his perception of being, you know, not not an elite guy, just kind of a a game manager at this point. I, I think that w while that may be true about him, the team that they've surrounded him with in San Francisco is going to make him still be productive from a fantasy perspective, especially in that spiked week 
mentality that you're looking at for best ball. Like he's not, he's going to have plenty of like 10 to 14 point games that aren't going to move the needle, but he's going to have a few 25 to 30 point games mixed in there. And I do think that that has value with Garoppolo. That nine yards per attempt and negative one average at the target line is going to be absolutely amazing. Um, Quickly. I'll also say I like Teddy Bridgewater as well. Uh, He has moved up to becoming almost a top two quarterback, top 24 in the past week. But Carolina added all seven of their picks on the defensive side of the ball. However, still likely trot out the league's worst defense. So if we expect Carolina to have to put their foot on the gas, that only helps Titty Bridgewater, who, unlike Kyle Allen, is actually extremely accurate underneath. Who is the biggest loser at quarterback and why is it Aaron Rodgers? Yeah, it's, I was about to say, that's so easy. Like, that's just the answer that everyone has is Aaron Rodgers. I mean, Aaron, you, weren't all, you weren't happy with Aaron Rodgers last year anyways, right? Uh, like sure. 17.4 fantasy points per game. Uh, only had four top three performances all year long. And then they went out and were reportedly supposed to add Austin Hooper. Completely whiffed. We're supposed to add more receivers. Completely whiffed. And so while that does make sneaky guys like Alan Lazard and Jay Sternberger winners. Again, that doesn't make Aaron Rodgers a winner to have to play with these guys again, uh, especially if they morph into this running offense that Kyle Shanahan burnt into their brains after 74 <laughs> to 28 scoring margin in two games last year. So uh, you just, yeah, you just cannot like Aaron Rodgers no matter what the position is. Well, yeah, and we're dancing around the fact we haven't mentioned it yet that they drafted his future replacement, Jordan Love, in the first round. They traded up to do it, too. So with that in mind, what if I put the line at over under 16 and a half more games started by Aaron Rodgers for the Green Bay Packers? You going over or under? I'm going over. I think he has two seasons left with the organization. And like I said, the long-term planning is absolutely lost despite that because they've wasted two years of a four-year deal they can get out of Jordan Love. So it was just all around a bad process. Even if Jordan Love is immensely wonderful, great player, it doesn't matter. The process was wrong. Over under two and a half career starts for Jameis Winston as a member of the New Orleans Saints. (sighs) One-year deal. Uh, I'm going to say under. Although if his signing does actually let them move Taysom Hill onto the field and sub-package rolls more. Um, one, that's disastrous for Drew Brees' fantasy value since he had all his yep. stuff taken away in the red zone in the playoff game last year. And two, that could lead to more injuries since Taysom Hill's quietly 30 years old. So maybe Jameis Winston does start more games, but I'll still take under. Where do you think Cam Newton's going to wind up? Because there are a handful of options that I think are still reasonable, uh, or at least you can make the case for them, right? Las Vegas, Washington, Jacksonville, New England, Denver. I, I mean, based upon what you talked about with Daniel Jones, I think the Giants could even be in the conversation. Maybe Chicago. I, I just don't know. Where do you see Cam Newton landing? I'm going to say I want him to land in Pittsburgh Ooh. because if Ben Rossberg gets injured, I think that's the weapon you need to keep all of those the young, explosive players afloat. But I would say he lands in Denver because they legitimately don't have a backup. Even Brandon Allen's uh, T-Rex arms aren't there anymore because he, they just they lost everyone behind Drew Locke. And with those weapons, you cannot throw just a guy under center if Drew Locke isn't proven successful. You have to have someone ready to step up immediately. And we know that the NFL is a buddy-buddy league, and John Elway did stand across from Cam Newton as the Broncos were beating him. So at least he saw Cam Newton's MVP season and Super Bowl performance. It was a bad one, don't get me wrong. 
but he saw the guy that led the team to the Super Bowl firsthand. All right, that's enough on veteran quarterbacks. Let's talk about the rookies who were drafted. Now that we know where they've landed on NFL teams, where do you think the top guys should be picked in Dynasty? Uh, Burrow, Tua, and Justin Herbert. Tua should be number one in Dynasty, in my mind still. However, Herbert, I think, offers more 2020 value because Tyrell Taylor, there's no guarantee he makes it full the year through the full year. He is. I like Tyrell Taylor a lot. And uh, I hope he succeeds because they, they do need this kind of manufacturer with this elite defense they've created with an improved offensive line and still great wide receivers in King Allen, Mike Williams, and Hunter Henry, not to mention Austin Eckler, quietly Joshua Kelly and Justin Jackson grinding down early down roles. And remember, Tyrod Taylor's familiar with Anthony Lynn. Uh, together in 2016, they com- commanded the league's leading rushing offense together for the Bills. However, uh, I think Justin Herbert still has the arm that Tyrod Taylor does not, perhaps not the accuracy, but Herbert at least has the arm, and Herbert has the rushing floor. So if Tyrod Taylor falters even a little bit, I would think they transition midseason to Herbert. So I think he makes a start before Tungo Vailoa, if only because Ryan Fitzpatrick still has one year left on his deal. And remember, Ryan Fitzpatrick was pretty good last year. Yeah, makes sense. Now, for Dynasty, I put Burrow and Tua back-to-back at you know, picks at 20 and 21. And Oh, I'm sorry. Bur- Burrow's one. You're right. I didn't even think about it. I was thinking the, about the five and six picks. I keep forgetting Burrow because he's such a sure thing. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, I don't blame you for that. I, but yeah, I put Burrow into a kind of back-to-back for Dynasty at picks 20 and 21 in my first pass at overall rookie rankings. So, you know, late second rounders, but obviously your Dynasty team's relative need for a quarterback is going to push their value up or down from that range. For Herbert, I have him as more of like a third-round dynasty pick. In terms of that redraft value you were talking about, I agree that Herbert is the safer pick because he doesn't have Tungavailoa's health concerns. I also think that Herbert has that easier bridge quarterback mini-boss to defeat in Tyrod Taylor, like you mentioned. With that said, I I still think I want Tua more in 2020 just because the upside is higher. He's the better talent. Miami doesn't have the same defensive infrastructure that the Chargers have. So I think that while the Dolphins should be improved on that side of the ball, they're not in the same defensive tier as L.A. So I expect more passing volume from Miami and volume is king in fantasy football. So unless the injury reports just end up being too damning, I like Tungavailoa in redraft just slightly more than Herbert, but it is close. It's very close, like literally splitting hairs close for those two. So what do you make of Philadelphia's Jalen Hurts pick at the 22nd pick of the second round? Should fantasy owners be worried about Carson Wentz? I don't think people should be worried about Carson Wentz. I've heard so many people I respect have a different opinion, which makes it tough. I I just think I would not have wasted that draft capital on this particular quarterback. I think backup quarterback is one of the, literally one of the most important positions in all of football, and too many teams veer away completely as opposed to focusing in on it. However, like I think it's a position I would be fine spending ten plus million on to make sure I'm safe, or trading for or spending high capital on Andy Dalton, a trade like that, as opposed to drafting an unknown. Like Jalen Hurts is an immense athlete, but still he's an unknown, and just to add a second round pick. I guess the compliment is you're spending draft capital on your backup quarterback, but it's still a question mark for your backup quarterback. So on one hand, I like the fact they prioritized it. On the other hand, I would have gone a different route personally. 
Yeah, I, I like that you brought up that idea of kind of crowdsourcing some of your opinions on these guys because it, it helps to bounce these ideas off other people. And one of the more interesting takes that I read was from Kevin Cole over at yep. Pro Football Focus. He wrote a great piece about why Hertz was actually a great pick for Philly. And I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes so you listeners can check it out. Essentially, Kevin makes the case that the Eagles are increasing their chances of having an elite quarterback by hedging their bets to some extent between Hertz and Carson Wentz. And if that is truly the motivation for Philadelphia, I I think that means that they do have some level of doubt about Wentz as the true top guy at the position. So I I think that Wentz fans do need to be worried on some level. I I agree that I think Wentz's job is probably safe for 2020, but I am curious to see if Hertz can usurp him later, like Lamar Jackson, Andrew Locke, both did to Joe Flacco, or maybe Hertz can find a starting spot by way of a transaction like Jimmy Garoppolo or Ryan Tannehill did. I think that there are a lot of potential avenues for him to become a starter and for him to net Philadelphia value as a starter, whether it's with them or with another team. And and I think that because of that, we have to at least throw a grain of salt of concern Wentz's way. I, I am a little bit concerned. I just don't know how the Eagles would get away in the next two years because he still has $52 million on his contract. Um, this season, if they got if they got out, which they're not going to, we know, but if they did, he still do 59 – like they would take on a $59 million dead cap hit. Uh, next year in 2022, they would take on a $25 million dead cap hit. And then they have an out after that, but we're still two years away from that. And much like Jordan Love, Jalen Hurts will already be two years into his four-year rookie deal. So I still think it's confusing, and I would have prioritized a veteran as opposed to a rookie. But again, I, I do I guess I understand yes. Having said that, if you're going to use the argument, oh no, they're they're actually getting more out of him because he's going to become a Taysom Hill like player, that's where I shut you down. Like that's where I'm done listening. Yeah, I don't see that either. It's never happening, ever. No, I, I only see it as injury insurance for Wentz and as that trade chip that they could potentially use before you know Carson Wentz's deal is set to expire, right? Because like you said, if if they wait that long, Hertz is already going to have lost a ton of value on that rookie deal. Whereas if they can flip him in year one or year two of that rookie contract, he still carries a lot of value potentially to another team. So that coupled with the injury insurance against Wentz, who's had trouble staying on the field, I think is the real way that Philly probably justified this pick. If I had to kind of dissect it and, and put my own thoughts to it, you know what I mean? Yeah, and uh, I really don't have any other thoughts on other quarterbacks. Uh, I did want Anthony Gordon to land somewhere useful, and I don't think Seattle's too useful because, remember, uh, Gardner Minshew did beat out Anthony Gordon, but it's the same exact system that Jacksonville just kind of threw a dart at an air raid quarterback, and he was successful. So I'm curious if Anthony Gordon can come in and do the same thing, randomly be successful, because maybe that gives us a tract to quarterbacks. We should be drafting in late rounds to have advantage of capital, right? And then uh, I'm also interested in Cole McDonald, if only for preseason DFS, because, (laughs) I mean, he's so much fun to watch, and he's also mobile. So not only does he just have like a fire laser arm, but he also runs around. So he's just a fun player. One more, now that you've mentioned preseason DFS, one more quarterback I want to bring up, and maybe we should have been treating him like a rookie this whole time, is Philip Walker, P.J. Walker, mm-hmm. who came over from the XFL to back up Teddy Bridgewater in Carolina. We haven't seen Teddy Bridgewater put together a full season as a starter. So there is some possibility that he's not going to be up to the task, right? And is there a chance that they move to Philip Walker, P.J. Walker. I can't remember which one it is. I always want to call him Philip Walker because that's, I think, how I learned. I think he's changed it to P.J. Anyway. I think the true name is, yeah, he was he was good as P.J. and not so good as Philip. So let's stick with P.J. So 
what do you think his potential value is here? Maybe, like, is he a guy you're interested in using in preseason DFS? Because he has that running profile as well. And do you think that there, like, what odds would you put on him taking over for Bridgewater at some point this season? So I'm not too high on the XFL guys. Like, Cam Phillips, uh, PJ Walker's receiver, looked like a world beater. And I don't think he's signed with the NFL yet, right? I haven't seen his name pop up. No, me neither. Okay, uh, if he has, then it took a long time, whatever the case. But the fact is, for as much grief as the AAF received, the def- the defense in the AAF actually led to a lot of players coming out and being successful on defense, whereas the XFL literally didn't have a single defender I was impressed by. That's why they've struggled to land on other teams. So it's just it's tough with P.J. Walker because he looked poor and the preseason games he's played in the past. But also he has a leg up because he's familiar with Matt Rule's scheme from their time at Temple together. So he has an advantage over other players. He'll be going to be interesting for his scrambling ability in the preseason. But in the regular season, I just cannot imagine going from XFL competition to NFL competition and being being a one-way quarterback, right? Like uh, not just scrambling, but if this defense is truly as awful as we think they're going to be, what does that have to say about P.J. Walker forcing the ball 50 different times and the defense knowing he's going to throw because he has to? Like, that has to be a disaster waiting. Yeah, I could see it, and that's fair. I do think that that connection between Rule and Bridgewater is one that we do need to play up here. That's probably the biggest reason why we can fade P.J. Walker, but you know, I know I know that uh, my old 2QB's partner, Sal Stefanelli, is, is a big Walker fan, so I, I feel good that we, we got a mention in for him on the podcast. Aww. I didn't know that, but I love Sal. I respect his opinion, so that's interesting. Yeah, um, and it is worth noting that he does have some previous NFL experience. Like, he was on the Colts roster for a while. He's not just an XFL guy. But anyway, let's move on from quarterback. Let's briefly touch on tight end. We've been going for a long time, so th- there's not a whole lot of takeaways from tight end in the draft, I don't think. But if you had to pick one veteran guy as a winner, who would it be? For me, you mentioned him earlier, Jay Sternberger, right? Year two could be really big for him after the Packers failed to add anyone at wide receiver. I think he's a good candidate. Hayden Hurst, I think, is another big winner because the Falcons didn't draft any offensive skill players. So that third banana roll for Hurst behind Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley remains unspoiled. Those are the two more obvious ones to me. And then one like really dumb idea that I had, and I don't know who it would be specifically, but I think that one of Washington's tight ends could probably be viewed as a winner here. They didn't draft a tight end, and the receiver group is still pretty uninspiring even after they added Antonio Gibson and Antonio Gandy-Golden. So I could see one of Jeremy Sprinkle or Hale Henches, or and I can't believe I'm saying this, maybe even Logan Thomas oh being one of those bargain basement tight end options in fantasy this season, like the tight end three in an FFPC best ball, something like that. So maybe there's like a gross little nugget of value you can mine from Washington. But I think the straightforward answers are Hayden Hurst and Jay Sternberger. Yeah, Jeremy Sprinkle just reeks of that minimum player guy we play in DFS, if only because he runs 30 routes but gets two catches per game. (laughs) Pure Uh, degeneracy with him. uh, My winners would be Mike Jasicki, who the Dolphins did not add anyone significant, not just at tight end, but on offense. Like They added Malcolm Perry, Navy's quarterback, in the seventh round and listed him as a wide receiver. But again, draft capital matters. And Jasicki led his position, all tight ends, 72% slot rate last year. It's concerning that it took Preston Williams leaving for his targets to go from under four per game to 7.3 in eight games without Preston Williams. But uh, he did was successful in those eight games without Preston Williams. So maybe he just 
maybe just since he has a proven rapport now with Ryan Fitzpatrick, that will matter. And then the biggest winner, the thing is he's been a winner all offseason and it didn't change from the draft, Chris Herndon. Uh, yes. Yeah, just you just got to get on the train. And I know someone mentioned this to me earlier, and it's like, does Chris Herndon really have a rapport with Sam Darnold? And the answer is yes. The fact the fact that both of them came out as rookies together, and Herndon still had over 500 yards and four touchdowns as a rookie tight end with a rookie quarterback, absolutely matters. And he was poised for that breakout right um, in year two. But it just didn't happen. 18 total snaps, a suspension, a soft tissue injury. And I know Ryan Griffin played 99% of the snaps without Chris Herndon. But then again, if Ryan Griffin did that, of course, that's Chris Herndon's role in the waiting. Chris Herndon just comes back and plays that role as a 24-year-old proven receiver. So Chris Herndon right now is getting drafted like as a tight end 20 to 25 and I think he should be going as a 12 to 14, if not higher in the tight end one range. Well, and his price isn't going to go up either because he burned so many people last year. Yeah. Like all those people who are willing to wait around for him and hope that he could turn into something, it just didn't happen. And sometimes those are the perfect players to go out and target in your drafts because the, the value gets suppressed so much. Um, biggest loser at tight end for you? A Blake Jarwin, given that C.D. Lamb's, uh, Lamb's availability now puts him in the slot and will likely limit Jarwin overall. Uh, Jarwin is a very explosive player. He didn't play many snaps last year, but still 11 yards per catch, 8.5 yards per target, um, and back-to-back seasons behind Jason Witten. And they gave him that $9.25 million guarantee, which is huge on a new four-year contract for a guy who hasn't played much. But uh, unless he proves to be Mark Andrews in his rookie year, right? Remember, Mark Andrews like was running yeah. 33% of his routes, but still averaging over 18 yards a catch because he was that explosive. It's going to take that unpredictability for Jarwin to stand out in this offense. So I think he lost a little bit in adding uh, CeeDee Lamb. Yeah, as much as I hate to admit it, he was the, the top of my list here as well. That C.D. Lamb signing or draft pick just kills him. I think that Jarwin could still end up being useful in best ball or as a streamer, if only for touchdown upside. But I think the dream of him being a top 10 tight end is probably dead. And, you know, listeners who have been with me this offseason know how much I was into Jarwin. So that really hurts me to say. And uh, I also want to. Th- oh, oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Just one more. Uh, I think Noah Fant lost out with all these new mouths. That's exactly who I was going to go to next. I think he's on thin ice as well. Yeah, I mean, under under three targets per game for Drew Locke in those five starts. So we already had that to buck. But now you add Albert O, who ran a 4.49 at, what, 6.53 something? I can't remember his exact measurements. I don't have them in front of me. But uh, Albert O, the most explosive tight end out of the draft for sure. And then also the wide receivers we've mentioned throughout this podcast. Yeah, and you're still tied to Drew Locke. And that sporadic quarterback play could really put fans mm-hmm. on the wrong side of fantasy owners' expectations. Rookie tight ends don't tend to matter in year one and often even in year two, but which one of the tight end rookies is the most interesting fantasy prospect in your eyes? So I'm going to go with a Roto World's Josh Norris favorite because he didn't he didn't really stand out to me until Josh started talking this guy up as one of his favorite offensive prospects in the entire class. And that's right. Devin Asiasi, who lands with the Patriots as they may look to instill this two tight end set all of a sudden as they did in previous years with Devin Asiasi and Dalton Keene. Asiasi, for instance, he started one year with Chip Kelly in that UCLA offense and averaged over 15 yards a catch, had 14 plays of 20 plus yards as a receiver. He's a poor blocker, 
so much so that UCLA and Chip Kelly actually hit him in the backfield off ball. So he doesn't offer that strength whatsoever. But then again, it's kind of good that our t- that our fantasy tight ends don't offer that because then they're pigeonholed into that role. Whereas Aussie Aussie, Bill Belichick is far too smart to even make him do that if he can't do that. He'll just bring him on as an explosive receiver. So even if we get three catches per game, that could be useful in the hellhole that is the tight end landscape in fantasy. Yep, Ozzy Ozzy was the top of my list here, only because the Patriots didn't add any any receivers in the draft. And I do expect a run-heavy scheme for them that's going to lead to a lot of opportunities for their tight ends on play action and seam routes and things like that. The other rookie I'll throw out here is Adam Troutman, who went to New Orleans with the 41st pick in the third round. The Saints just still don't have a ton of receiving depth behind Michael Thomas, Emmanuel Sanders, and Jared Cook. So I could see Troutman having some maybe sporadic use in the first season, maybe year two, he can overtake Jared Cook. I think that's a possibility. But in general, I'm really not going to concern myself too much with rookie tight ends. It's just the nature of the position. And imagine that with this year, uh, not being able to work with quarterbacks or learn their schemes. It's going to be a disaster. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. John, that's all I got for you. I really want to thank you for taking the time to join me on the pod today. This has gone long, but I think it's a, it's going to be worth the listen for uh, everyone who's out there. I think you've dropped a ton of great knowledge, and, and I really want to thank you for your time. Thanks a lot, man. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Why don't you let folks uh, know where they can find you on social media and, and what you've been working on? Yeah, you can find me at not Jay Daigle, the worst Twitter handle in existence because we're nine years running and it's too late to change now, unfortunately. Uh, best ball tiers, I'll be updating mind for every position ready for next week. So stay tuned for that Monday. And of course, the Roto World Football Podcast on iTunes, uh, the best fantasy podcast, according to the FSWA um, this past year. So go ahead and subscribe to that. Awesome. Thanks, John. Um, that does it for this episode of Team Math Listeners. If you want to follow me, you can hit me up on Twitter at Greg Sauce. If you like what you heard on this show, please leave us a nice rating and review on iTunes. Or if you can just spread the word on this podcast by good old-fashioned word of mouth to your friends, family, fantasy rivals, whoever, that would be great too. Remember that we've got you covered for all things fantasy football over at 444.com, including a bunch of other great content about the 2020 NFL Draft. I'll be back again next week with another great guest to dive even deeper into the post-draft fantasy landscape. So until then, thanks for listening to the Most Accurate Podcast. This is-